Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I am your host, Heather Evans. The topic for today's show is presidential approval, what affects it, and what doesn't seem to matter any longer. So to make sense out of the approval ratings that we're seeing in public opinion polls for Joe Biden, I've invited two guests to chat today. You may remember my first guest from one of, actually, it turns out it was my very first episode uh, on this program for Red, White, and Confused, and the episode was on governors and the pandemic. Andrew Sanders is an assistant professor of political science at Texas A&M University, San Antonio, and his research and teaching focuses on conflict and conflict resolution and Texas politics. And specifically, he also teaches a course on the presidency, as do I. So, Andrew, thanks for coming back to the show. It's great to be back. Heather, nice to see you again. Nice to see you, too. So, all right, Biden's approval right now, and this is March 22nd, it's sitting at Okay, so according to Rasmussen, we're looking at 41% approving of his performance with 58% disapproving. 538, on the other hand, which collects a lot of polls and kind of averages them out, has it around 42.2 with 52.8 disapproving. Does this seem out of the ordinary for a president at this point in his presidency? Yeah, it's kind of interesting looking at the, the Biden approval rating. You know, we've seen historically the midterm elections are difficult for for a president whether that be their their first term or the midway point of their second term and it's not uncommon for a president who has a unified congress during their first term in office to lose at least part of it we've been looking at the the senate races over the last few years and we've talked about how the senate races the last two cycles haven't been favorable to democrats the Democrats did manage to actually get a majority back. I mean, it's the smallest of majorities in the sense that it's not even really a majority because the tie has to be broken by the vice president and any votes. But the next Senate election was the one that everybody was looking at as being favorable to the Democrats. They could take back control of the Senate. On the other hand, the control of the House is now, you know, it's under threat for them. And, you know, that's not uncommon for a president. And Sometimes people think about a midterm election as being a referendum on, on a president on their first two years. Obviously, we have these kind of mini referenda, which are, take the, the form of presidential polls. And when we look at the Biden approval rating, we see that he's actually you know, pushing. You know, we're looking at like you know, just over six months of being underwater with his approval. You know, he was above 50. He didn't he never hit really hit 60. There's a few outlying polls. Um, but the average, he was right around that kind of 52, 53%. And then right around the end of the summer last year, it started to dip. Um, and then we get to the point in kind of late August, early September, when the averages start to pass one another and his disapproval overtakes his approval. And now we're at this point where, you know, if we go by the 538 collection of polls, he's looking at 43% approval. It's not really an approval rating that gives you a lot of confidence going into a midterm if you're someone responsible for the Democratic Party's performance in that midterm. Yeah, and I noticed on 538, uh, some of the conversation that people are having on that is that, oh, this approval, say 42 to 43 percent, it's like a bump up. 
mm-hmm. uh, from, I guess, a, a week or two ago, right at March 1st, it was two points lower. And they're yeah. saying they're like, oh, this is, this is good, but I don't two points. Like, is that, can we necessarily say that's a bump? You know, I mean, overall, it's you, when you factor in margin of error to a lot of these polls, you know, usually we're looking at margin of error kind of two, three percent anyway. So it's it's almost nothing if you bring that margin of error into your analysis. Right. It's basically meaningless. And obviously, Biden had a state of the union. And when you read commentary on the state of the union, there's a lot of people who are who would perhaps be supporters of Biden and they're critical of it. There's, you know, the, the commentary, particularly over the pandemic, right? There's the, a lot of sense of, you know, okay, back to normal now. And a lot of Americans don't feel that way, right? Some Americans' lives have been changed forever by this pandemic, whether that be the loss of somebody, some kind of permanent illness or injury that they've suffered, or perhaps a career catastrophe that's a result of the pandemic. And there was this tone in the the state of the union that I think didn't really go down well with a lot of people who might be sort of notionally Biden supporters, those kind of wavering voters, they're absolutely going to be needed to show up for the Democrats come November this year. And if they don't, you know, there's a good chance they lose at least one side of Congress. Yeah. And you were mentioning the idea of a referendum. If any of my students are listening to this, we talk about midterm law a lot in class Yeah, that, you know, the president typically loses seats in the midterm, especially Mm -hmm. in the house. And I've had a few different political candidates on this show. And we've talked about what do we think Congress is going to look like Mm -hmm. after the 2022 midterms, given inflation and also given all right, you know, I'm here in Southwest Virginia, gas prices going up, you know, and people having to deal with that on a daily basis. Do we think that that might affect whether people support him and his party? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of this comes down to who people blame for these things, you know, and it depends on their their level of, of information on the specific issue, right? So people who really understand the way that gas prices are set will tell you that it's nothing to do with Biden. You know, I mean, Biden could intervene to adjust them, of course, but they're not, there's, there's no control over how they're set within the white house. And the other thing about gas prices is that we're a car driven nation, right? Basically 95% of the United States is, is only um, navigable if you have a car and you think about people, you know, who, perhaps lost their jobs during the the pandemic and went to to one of these kind of, um, you know, the DoorDash, the Favor, the Uber, the Lyft, you know, these sort of on-demand driving jobs, basically. And how does this affect them? Because, you know, how many times do they have to fill their car up every week? And the other thing that you'll see on social media and friends send me these pictures all the time when they see them is that little sticker that someone's got where it's like, that's my fault. And it points to the gas price. Now, obviously, if that sticker lasts into the gas price recovery, when it's back to 250 or whatever a gallon instead of 390, then, okay, that, that looks better for Biden. So perhaps that could help him, right? Those stickers will help him. Sometimes there's a collection on the pump as well, right? With different democratic figures and their faces kind of going, that was us. But, you know, these things, these are like bread and butter issues, right? These, these things, you know, people in the US need cars and they need their cars to get around. And if gas prices are high, that's a significant chunk out of their, 
weekly, monthly budgets. And this is kind of where the problem really lies for Biden. If people do blame him for this, you know, if people do blame him for the broader swell of inflation that we're seeing internationally, right? Because we're not the only country that's going through this, then they're going to vote against his party. And it gives the Republicans a really easy, really memorable issue to campaign on, right? This idea of Biden made your groceries more expensive, Biden made your gas more expensive. And they're like, well, who's going to fix it? And then they say, well, we will fix it. You know, we'll bring down the prices. And of course, you know, they don't have any control over those things either, right? But um, it can really affect an election and those kind of day-to-day -day issues and the way that people engage with those issues and the way that that impacts their political views is hugely significant, yeah. Yeah, so I think about how people in this region, they do have to drive to work. We don't have public transportation. In a lot of cities, you know, it's one thing to kind of like park your vehicle, maybe take public transportation to work back and forth, you know, do your errands and things like that. You just really can't do that here. We have a lack of broadband access as well. And so people are not working from home like they are in other places. And I think that the voters here, well, there were already pretty conservative voters. This district is like the 38th or 39th most conservative district in the United States. So I would expect them to vote for Republicans in the upcoming midterms anyways. Uh -huh. But this might might actually pull some Democrats over the fence. Yeah, if, if they see the Republican candidates in the area as, as viable, as people who will try and challenge this, as people who bring your, bring your bills down, then then it'll, it'll help them. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a graphic that I saw, actually it was from the, the article you sent me, where it ties presidential approval to gas prices going back to Jimmy Carter. And you can see these lines are very close. The only times when they ever kind of separate is when the gas price is way higher than the presidential approval. And that happens, you know, right through a good chunk of the Clinton administration. Now, there's some interesting counters to that because there's evidence that, you know, during the, the first Gulf War, that there was an oil shock in 1990 after Iraq invaded Kuwait. And George H.W. Bush saw a significant approval jump. Now, obviously, the first Gulf War at the time was seen as this huge success, right? Saddam Hussein withdrew and, you know, we won. Obviously, we know that subsequently a lot of service personnel started to suffer from very serious illnesses that were a consequence of things that happened during the Gulf War, particularly the burning of um, various uh, oil fields and things like that. But George H.W. Bush had a big popularity jump as a result of that. Obviously, he didn't win re-election in 1992, but, you know, by that point, George H.W. Bush had been the vice president or the president for, you know, over a decade. Um, so, it, you know, it does happen that these, these things can separate out, but it's just so consistent, you know, and it just tells you just how important that issue is, you know, and it's so closely tied, like, throughout the Trump administration, they're so closely tied. Um, and then obviously right now you see gas price, Biden's popularity, you know, that's, that's happening again. This is actually going to be one of my final questions. It's, it's about Ukraine. Cause mm. I, you know, again, gas prices are something that we see every American sees them if we're driving. So we all know they're up and then maybe in our minds like that and the presidential approval, like gets tied together. But then we've got the issue the world issue, right? Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. 
Um, do you think that that's affecting his, well, as 538 put it, the bump, the two point bump since the beginning yeah. of March? Yeah, I think that the way that Biden handles this will be, you know, obviously it'll be hugely consequential for, for Ukraine uh, because you know, the Biden administration, I think, has taken quite a sensible approach on Ukraine so far. They've basically gone to the point where they're saying, okay, we'll do all we can with sanctions. You know, wh- whatever, whatever we need to do in terms of sanctions, we'll do it. We'll protect NATO. So if Putin was to expand his invasion to Lithuania, Latvia, um, then, okay, that's an invasion of NATO. We're all signed up to NATO. One of the big things that Trump obviously went on about was other countries not paying their fair share into NATO. And what you're seeing now is a lot more countries more invested in NATO. And it's obviously a consequence of what's happening in Ukraine. And I think that Biden's actually playing it quite smartly you know the u.s doesn't want to have a no-fly zone in ukraine because it means you have to enforce a no-fly zone and you know if you have to enforce a no-fly zone it means you have to shoot down russian jets and then at that point now you're in a war uh putin's rhetoric is all over the place and he's clearly um somewhat unstable and he's threatened nuclear war you know that would just you know it would be you know it's, it's really inconceivable you know just how bad things could get um, you know, Russian nuclear subs carry, I think, like 10 nuclear warheads, something like that. So, you know, you just need one nuclear sub to launch. And then all of a sudden you're talking about hundreds of millions of people, wherever that might be, being killed. And then obviously we would bomb back and then all these Russians are, are going to be killed in the retaliation. And it would be horrible. So obviously we don't want to get there. So I think Biden has been quite measured. There's been some kind of hawkish people who are saying, OK, you need to do this, you need to do that. You've seen people like former Obama advisors, like Michael McFaul, who's currently at Stanford, has been making some comments on social media that he's being criticized for. And obviously, you know, social media is kind of problematic like that because you can get into these uh, sort of shallow analysis of situations. And, you know, for political science students, if, if you have IR students and they're studying John Mearsheimer's work, he was kind of the... the you know, the Twitter character of the day a couple of weeks ago because he had his talk from 2015, which was publicized. And then the Russian government actually used it as their justification for the original invasion. They're saying, well, you know, Mearsheimer said, well, look, this NATO expansion is going to be highly provocative to Putin and we should be careful about it. It's not really the same thing, right? He's not saying, okay, now Putin's going to invade. But, you know, Mearsheimer's older work talked about this idea of offensive realism and, you know, the, the idea that Russia would try to expand its influence within its geographic region, within, within countries and, that are close by to it. And that, I think, Mearsheimer's original argument explains it a little bit better than his more recent one. But, you know, from Biden's perspective, it's, you know, it's it's hugely significant to see, you know, on our, on our televisions, there's obviously journalists who are there right now. I don't know if you saw the CNN clip where they were covering the air raid and then it cut off to like an Applebee's commercial right in the middle of it. So you've got this tiny screen when there's an air raid in, in Kiev and then you an Applebee's ad, you know, these, these kind of clips, I mean, it's that sort of juxtaposition of like the comfort that we have in the United States right now in terms of our access to, let's just say chain restaurants and in the, in the people in Ukraine who are you know under air raid and being bombed. It's President Zelensky's been on with Congress. He's been asking for asking for a no-fly zone, asking for aid, and you know he's he's really becoming this kind of enig- you know this enigmatic, charismatic um, rather leader. And 
you know, the, the, the way that Congress is responding, there's pressure being, being put on, on Biden as well. From the perspective of oil, this is also significant, right? Because so much of the West imports Russian oil, we became so reliant on Russian oil and gas particularly, that I think 70% of like EU gas and oil came from Gazprom, which is a Russian company. And, you know, the US, it doesn't affect the US as much. The US isn't as dependent on foreign oil as it used to be, particularly during the 70s. So that crisis that really took care of Jimmy Carter's presidency in the late 1970s. That's because we were so dependent on OPEC countries. Another dimension to this as well is the fact that we did have Iranian oil in the global market until that particular deal got torn up by the previous administration. So that would be something that could be easing the at least the current deficit of oil. But it's also not asking kind of bigger questions, and that's whether or not we need to invest more in renewables so that we're not dependent on these unstable relationships for our oil in the future. And, you know, that's something that a lot of energy companies, particularly where I, where I am or in Texas, a lot of energy companies were investing in renewables. You know, there are so many wind turbines around Texas. You know, if you head out to West Texas, you see just hundreds of them. And you head down to the coast, down towards Corpus Christi, you have that interesting juxtaposition of all these wind turbines and then the huge refinery that's right there at Corpus. So, you know, U.S. energy strategy um, also, and that's also impacted by what's going on in Ukraine. And, you know, a lot of this kind of ultimately ends up coming together and it does place a huge amount of pressure on, on Biden and the whole party. Yeah, it definitely does. Well, thank you for being on the show again. Hmm. It was great to catch up with you. And I guess we'll just wait and see what happens with his approval. But I do think his approval is going to be tied to how the party does in 2022. It's going to be, it's going to be difficult for them. It, yeah, it really is. And then if you lose half of Congress, you know, you have all this legislative power right now and mm-hmm. they're not really using it because what, what's happened with the narrow margin in the Senate is that you give two of the more outspoken Democrats in Manchin and Cinema all this power to just, well, hum and haul over legislation and then it doesn't get passed. And you pile so much of your agenda into one bill and you let Mansion and Cinema crush that bill, then you have to somehow recover your agenda and break it into pieces. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of work that needs done. And obviously right now they're, he's trying to get a Supreme Court justice on, you know, which has its own challenges. It definitely does. Well, thanks again. Thank you. If you are just now tuning in, hi, this is Red, White, and Confused, and I'm your host, Heather Evans. You were just listening in on a conversation about presidential approval with Andrew Sanders, who is an assistant professor of political science at Texas A&M University, San Antonio. Here at WEHC 90.7 FM, we are in the middle of our spring 2022 fundraiser. Any support you give helps keep WEHC on the air by helping provide engineering support, programming costs, licensing fees, streaming fees, and power bills, among other expenses. Your support also helps WEHC provide a valuable learning environment to Embry and Henry College students who work at the station in a variety of professional roles. To make a donation, you can call 276-944-6593, or you can also go online at www dot and select make a gift.
Okay, enough of that. Now let's get back to the show. I have also invited a second guest today to chat about their research on presidential approval. Michael Sansas studies representation and accountability through the lens of U.S. state and local government. Recent research projects include the impact of the Affordable Care Act on political behavior, the causes and consequences of cities' use of fines and fees as a revenue source, and spatial voting in mayoral elections. He received his Ph.D. in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 2014 and has previously served as a postdoc scholar at Vanderbilt University and an assistant professor at the University of Memphis. So thanks for joining me, Michael. Thanks for having me. Now, you had a recent article come out in the AJPS about how the economy affects presidential approval. Can you tell us a little bit about your research? Sure. So we have lots of evidence that the economy is really important for presidential approval and the electoral fortunes of presidents. Um, So my research is kind of, I I would say, um, sort of on the frontiers of of that question, sort of lingering questions we have about that relationship. Um, One of the questions that we have is whether that relationship, you know, makes really makes any sense, whether it's sensible for voters to blame the president. Uh, for the economy, you know, because how much control does the president actually have over the economy? Um, In the AJPS paper, I'm looking specifically at the question of the timing of the relationship between presidential approval and the economy. So presidents often talk about how they've inherited bad economies from their predecessors. They're often trying to shift blame for bad economies, uh, whether that's because of uh, because of a war that's happening, uh, driving oil prices up or you know, maybe they, they're claiming they inherited the bad stuff from their predecessor. Uh, they're often, we often see them many times making, taking credit for good things that we wonder if they really had any responsibility for. Uh, so for example, um, right when Trump came into office, just a few weeks after he was already taking credit for the economic boom and pointing to particular projects and, and announcements about job creations that later was revealed had been in the works for many years. Um, So my paper was looking at basically how do voters make sense of this and how do they adjust that relationship between presidential approval and the economy as presidents are early in office versus later in office. And I also looked at that um, through the lens of governors uh, because I wanted to know how general was the pattern. So taking advantage of the fact that in uh, 2019, many governors had only been in office for a few months. And so did we also see a relationship? You know, were voters in those states saying that those new governors were responsible for the state economy, even though they had just gotten into office? So what did you find in terms of the timing of this? Do voters hold presidents accountable for the economy early in their terms? They do. Absolutely. So, you know, we might have expectations about, you know, political scientists before, you know, my article had looked at the question of, can we sort of objectively pin down the influence of the president as social scientists, right? So look at the relationship between the party of the president, you know, are are Republicans or Democrats good for the economy, right? And so one thing we have to do when we think about that is, um, you know, think about what's a sensible cutoff for when the president starts to be responsible. And the general consensus there seems to be that maybe, you know, maybe it's after a year, you know, the first year, maybe give the president a pass. So you know, when Trump comes in, let's say that first year the economy is inherited and then we'll sort of statistically assign the rest of it uh, to him. 
And then we might also think that um, as social scientists that the later we go, the longer the president's been in office, the more responsibility they have because they've been there longer. Um, their legislation, their major policy enactments have uh, for one been enacted, but also been implemented. And maybe there's a cumulative effect. So some of the things we might expect would be uh, number one, there's not much of a relationship between um, presidential approval in the economy in the first year. And number two, we might expect that voters give more weight to the economy as time goes on. Uh, and neither of those things are true. Uh, so for one, there's an almost immediate relationship. So basically a few months into a new president's term, voters are already, already associating the performance of the economy or their perception of it um, into their judgment of how the president's doing. And number two, that doesn't really seem to change uh, much over time. So president who's been in office eight years, the economy is just as important as it would be if they were in office for eight months or eight weeks, or maybe a little longer than that, than eight weeks, but not much longer. Um, and that's also true when we look at governors. Um, and so, you know, one thing I did is I used, I basically used um, existing surveys to look at the presidential approval question, because we have lots of questions that ask about that. But I was also curious how this played out at the state level. So I collected my own survey about uh, voters in states and their governors. And, um, you know, you might think that, well, maybe voters don't really understand how long their governors have been in office. But I ran a version of this where I told voters how long their, their governors have been in office, you know, um, and we saw essentially the same thing. So despite what, you know, social scientists might think or what we, you know, what we might have expectations about what's the kind of right attitude toward this, um, voters seem to be saying it's the president's economy as soon as they're in office. Uh, and we don't give any more weight to that as time goes on. Yeah. And in looking at Joe Biden's presidential approval right now, so 538, they've been having this conversation about how, well, since the beginning of March, we've seen a two point rebound, which to me, two points, I don't know, is two points really a rebound because of, you know, errors and surveys and all of that, but still, okay, up two points. However, we have record inflation and we have, you know, people are getting out of their homes and they're driving more now and they're seeing a rise in gas prices. Do you think that inflation and gas prices are going to affect, well, do you think there are, do you think they are affecting his approval? And do you think that they will affect the midterm elections? I think so. And so I would say that um, I might be, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm in the minority there, but I would say there's a growing number of scholars and, you know, with work that supports this, that maybe the economy is not as important as it used to be. Um, and the reason is because of partisan polarization. And, you know, voters don't really need to know much about anything except the party of the president, and they can use that to judge whether they're doing a good job. Um, however, you know, there's still a, a significant contingent, you know, electorally anyway, of independent voters and voters in the middle. And for them, um, the economy, you know, if it's going to matter for anyone, it's going to matter for them. And I also think it's, you know, based on what I've seen, even if voters factor in partisanship, you know, there's still a general trend that's driven by the economy and conditions. And so, you know, even if I have a baseline level of support for Biden, say, as a Democrat, I'm still going to like him less if the economy, you know, does does worse, right? Even if I'm, you know, if, if it's different between 95 to 92 percent approval rating, it's still, um, I think it's still, um, it still matters. So, you know, definitely in Biden, um, 
definitely worries about that. And the Democrats are worrying about that for the midterm elections. Um, and so that's in part why, I mean, you know, when Biden made that decision to, um, you know, ban uh, oil imports and basically knowing that that's going to affect gas prices, um, that was a politically very risky move. Um, and I think, you know, maybe maybe the calculus was something like we know that voters are going to blame me for gas prices anyway. Maybe this is a way to kind of get out in front of that. Maybe it's a way to, again, kind of try to shift the blame um, to Russia um, and say that, you know, this is a necessary step in, in order to you know, contribute to foreign policy efforts. And so, um, but in any event, I think, you know, there's definitely a relationship and um, I think it's definitely, Democrats are definitely worried about that for the midterm elections. Now in your work, did you link up the approval of the president or approval of the governor to the approval of their party? And just sort of like the general idea that I'm going to be less likely to vote for this party in the upcoming election? I don't think I did that empirically, but I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, presidents and governors care about this, right? Is that um, in theory. So like my approach was sort of to say, well, why should we look at this at all? Uh, why is presidential approval interesting? Why don't we just go straight to the election, right? Because that's ultimately what matters. And one of the reasons is, of course, we know approval matters for the election. Presidents with higher approval ratings are more likely to be reelected. But we also know that presidents with higher approval ratings, uh, that just has a big impact on their party's fortunes. So the midterm elections coming up, you know, Biden's not on the ballot, but his party is all the way up and down, starting at Congress and down to the state and local level. And those state and local officials and members of Congress uh, know that their fortunes are tied inherently to Biden's. You know, if it's going to be, if, if Biden's popular, then the Democrats are going to do well. If Biden's not popular, uh, the Republicans are going to do better. And that also has effects on, you know, before the midterms, after the midterms, on the legislative success of the party's agenda. Um, so if the president's more, more popular, then it's more likely that his agenda is going to get passed. Um, and we know that's particularly important early on in the term when we see, you know, if we're going to see any legislative activity when uh, under a, president, a new president's going to happen then. So there's definitely a relationship. You know, we have no political officials independent of another in our system, given the party links. And so uh, the parties definitely have a concern for the economy as well. And that's why Republicans are going to be talking about inflation probably more than, than the Democrats actually leading up to the midterms. Yeah. So thank you again for being on the show. It's a, I guess the last word really is that the economy is going to matter. I mean, it, it, it has in every election when it comes to the president being back on the ballot or just their party. So thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. Good to speak with you. Good to speak with you too. Um, and thanks to all of you for listening. Again, this was Red, White, and Confused. If you missed any piece of this today, you can catch up again on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week.